biggest events in history sometimes turn on the smallest hinges. Kaiser Wilhelm II was king and last emperor. He ruled Prussia and Germany from 1888 until 1918, and he was an ambitious man, but he was also a volatile man. And his policies, some stories, they were pretty aggressive and were at least partially to blame for World War I. But back in 1889, there was a travelling, if you can believe this, this is true, a travelling Wild West American show through Germany. And it got to Berlin, and there was this woman who was part of the show, and a, a woman called Annie Oakley. And she would do all kinds of tricks with a 45 pistol. And at one point in the show, what she would do is she'd ask for a volunteer. And she'd get a volunteer to put a cigar in their mouth, or at least suggest that. And what she would say that she would do is that she would shoot the ashes off the end of the cigar. Well, people didn't really volunteer for that, and so what she did normally was get her, her husband to, to volunteer, trusting man that he was. But, but on this particular day, who was in the audience? Kaiser Wilhelm II. And when she asked for a volunteer, just as a joke, who came down the front? But Kaiser Wilhelm II, this is what a historian says, sweating profusely and regretting that she had consumed more than her usual amount of whiskey the night before, Annie raised her colt, took aim, and blew away the ashes from Wilhelm's cigar. Remarkable moment, and the historian goes on to wonder how the world might have been different if she had missed the cigar and got in. And years later, apparently, during World War I, Annie wrote to Wilhelm asking if she could take a second shot. <laughs> See, sometimes the biggest events turn on just the smallest of hinges. And that's exactly what we see in the book of Exodus this week. In fact, that's what we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks. This morning we're going to focus on the birth of Moses. Perhaps it's a story familiar to you. Perhaps it's not. Perhaps you need reminding. But we want to ask the question firstly, why, why is this recorded in the book of Exodus? Well, it's most likely recorded because the original audience for this book are the second generation of Israelites, not those who actually came out of Egypt and those who wandered in the wilderness. They had grumbled and complained. And so this first generation would die off. And so who would know what God had done? Well, the book of Exodus is Moses' recollection, perhaps with some help, of what had happened how God had rescued his people and brought them to the promised land. That's why this book was written, but in one sense, that, that's one reason. There's, there's an even better reason why this book has been written. It's been written because what has gone on in this book is what the Israelites needed to know. And indeed, it's what you and I need to know. 
as we wander the world. We need to be reminded, if not um, each week, but particularly I think this week, that in a world of chaos, in a world of upheaval, in a world where death kind of creeps up on us always in surprising ways, God has a plan. And no evil or upheaval can thwart it. And he uses ordinary to work out his plan. And so what we're going to see this morning is God working out his plan through three pretty ordinary women, or at least two, and one relatively well-known woman. So we're going to look at three women this morning. Firstly, we're going to look at Moses' mother. We see there, if you've got a Bible open to chapter 2, there in verse 1, that Moses is from the Levites. He's from the right tribe. Um, if he's going to be a mediator, an intercessor for God's people, a sort of priest before a priest, formally. And uh, Moses' older brother, Aaron, would be the one from which priests would come from. But more importantly, um, Moses isn't just from the right tribe. Moses, in fact, has the right mother. We learn later on in the book of Exodus that his mother's name was Jochebed. And she was married to Moses' dad, a man called Amram. Now, the decree that we saw last week at the end of chapter 1 is that the Pharaoh says that all babies are to be cast in the river Nile. And we suspect that this decree was issued pretty close to the birth of Moses. Moses um, probably was born at this time, um, or just after this decree. Because what we see, and what we saw really last week, was Pharaoh had tried everything to stop these people. Remember, the promise of God multiplying his people was from the book of Genesis, God's promise to Abraham. And the multiplication, the increase of God's people was a sign of God's blessing. And here this figure of evil, Pharaoh, is doing everything he can to oppose God and his plans. He tries to make them slaves so hard labour would kill them off. He tried to get the midwives involved last week and said, when they have a boy, just kill him. But it doesn't work. They keep growing. And finally, at the end of chapter 1, he says, okay, whoever sees, whenever you see a baby boy, just chuck him in the river Nile. And so you can imagine the kind of circumstance, the kind of upheaval that Moses' mother is in. I don't know if you've been watching, been, I think quite closely watching what's been happening in Ukraine, right? And I heard this week of twins being born in Ukraine only for their parents to be killed days after they had been born. It's a chaotic world that we live in, and it was a chaotic world that Moses was brought into. Moses' mother does the best that she can. She wants to hide her child, child from this ridiculous, evil Eid. And perhaps she could do that pretty well for three months because the baby was sleeping. Um, Mandy tells me I'm very good at sleeping through crying babies. But there comes a point where babies cry 
is, um, you know, the older they get, the harder it gets to ignore them or pretend to sleep. So Moses stays hidden for three months, but when he gets older, uh, perhaps it's that cry that uh, Moses' mother can no longer hide. And so what, she's, what is she going to do? Well, she takes a basket, probably more likely a chest, something sturdy and solid, and she waterproofs it there with bitumen and, and pitch, and then she puts it uh, with Moses into on the Nile. And I wonder what kind of picture you have of Moses' mother placing that baby in that basket, putting it upon the river. Is she a ball of nerves, crying profusely, saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Sending a baby off and hoping for the best. It may well have been tears, and no doubt there was great anxiety, and indeed agony, in Moses' mother's heart. But the picture here is not of a weak woman. The picture here is of a woman of remarkable courage. As one commentator said of Moses' mother, her actions are an ironic reversal of Abraham in Genesis chapter 2. Abraham obeys God's order to kill Isaac, yet Isaac is spared. Moses' mother disobeys Pharaoh's order to kill Moses, yet Moses is spared. In one incident, God honours obedience. In the other incident, he honours defiance. That's true, isn't it? Obedience to God's word matters. And it means that there are some times when obedience to God means a defiance to those above us. We were reminded in Hebrews chapter 11 in our second reading that by faith, Moses, when he was born, he was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was remarkable, unique, and sometimes could be translated beautiful. And more importantly, because they were not afraid of the king's edict. That's really significant, isn't it? They did it by faith in God's promise. This, this wasn't simply a last resort. No doubt there was great anxiety here. But this was not a hopelessness. That baby, as vulnerable as it was, as all babies are, but you know, you can imagine placing a baby in the water in this flimsy little basket. The book of Hebrews says that that was done by faith. By faith, God was more important to be obeyed than Pharaoh. By faith, Moses' parents understood that God was worthy to be obeyed more than Pharaoh was to be feared. Remember last week we saw that the fear of God is, in fact, what drove those two midwives back in chapter 1. They were given the command to kill the babies, but they did not because they feared God. 
And we were reminded last week that Pharaoh, I think, was afraid too. He was afraid of the Israelites, that they were growing to so many that they would rebel and conquer his kingdom. And we were reminded that everyone is afraid of something. And the Bible knows that. The Bible reminds us that the wisest way to live our life is not without fear, but it's to live our life in fear of God. We see again that Moses' parents were not afraid of Pharaoh's order. What can Pharaoh do to me? They might have thought. Well, he could do a lot. He could kill them and their child. But by faith, they knew that whatever Pharaoh did, he could not do it against God's will. And whatever Pharaoh did, he could not destroy their faith and their trust in the God who promised to them their forefathers. They were not afraid of Pharaoh, so they hid the child. It's not that they were afraid of Pharaoh, so they hid the child. They were not afraid of Pharaoh, so they hid the child. Courageous woman, place him her beautiful little one on that river and created two as she made the best of the limited circumstances that she had. And I think there's a great reminder here for us. Um, we'd love to live in an ideal world with an ide- ideal circumstances. We all long for that, but that's not what God gives us. God often gives us quite limited circumstances. He places us in situations that are complex and where we feel inadequate. But what he calls for us to do is not change the world. That's his job. He calls us to be faithful in just the little things. Those situations that God places us in, often the ordinary things of life, have a massive impact upon the world. Pharaoh's daughter, where we read, in her kindness brings this child in. And you can imagine the rejoicing in the short term is Miriam, daughter of uh, Moses' sister, comes back, telling, perhaps telling their mum that the plan had worked, that Moses is alive. And this, I think, situation of Moses just in these short number of verses being rescued I think it reminds us how significant the role of a mother is in a person's life. In fact Bible often speaks of this and often of the sacrifice that mothers make. Reminded of Hannah who desperately wants a child and then the child that she receives Samuel she gives to be raised in the tabernacle. Well, you think of those two women who are fighting in front of Solomon over a child, and Solomon says he'll cut the child in half, and obviously the real mother is more than willing for someone else to have her child rather than her child be killed. And we can think most poignantly of Mary, who at the foot of, cro- at, at the, foot of the cross sees her little boy, all 
thing a mum can do is to let go of the child that belongs to God even more than it belongs to her. So we've seen Moses' mother. Secondly, we see Miriam, Moses' sister. Aaron, Moses' older brother, is three years older at this time, and Miriam was probably older than that. She was certainly old enough to have an intelligent conversation with Pharaoh's daughter. Scholars estimate she's probably between six and 12 years of age. And if Moses' mother was courageous and creative, his sister was resolute and resourceful. Um, we don't know if this was some kind of plan that Miriam and mother had worked out, um, but what we do know is there in verse 4, that she stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. No doubt she's looking intently, wondering what's going to happen to her little brother. And it's a great reminder to us that kids can be used very powerfully in God's plan in ways beyond what they know, but perhaps more significantly, significantly for us, beyond what we know. Uh, we're going to be doing other things as a church and kids' ministry, starting in a few weeks' time, a Friday afternoon. Well, we just started scripture this week. It's so good to get back into the school. Um, Man's going to give it, uh, tell us about something else that's starting up for kids, and... Uh, there's a sense in which we can say, well, that's great for kids and, and for them, and it's kind of out there. But I want us to be reminded that we ought not underestimate how God can use children and how God can use children in ways perhaps that adults can't, the way in which a child speaks to a parent about what they're learning in Scripture or invites another child along to come to church, kids can be used powerfully, and I think Miriam is a great reminder of that. Third, third woman that I want to look at is Pharaoh's daughter. We don't really know the risk that was posed in Pharaoh's daughter adopting baby. Did Pharaoh mind that she was bringing up this Hebrew child, the kind of kid, kids that he was wanting to kill. We don't really know, but whatever the risks might have been or not have been, it was certainly a very kind, motherly and honourable thing for that princess to do. Moses' mother was courageous and creative. His sister was resolute and resourceful. But his adoptive mother is powerful and full of pity. She's a woman of compassion. And you've heard of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Well, this is the parable of the Good Egyptian. Because I think there's a great reminder for us here. And it reminds us that people aren't as bad as they could possibly be. Often, um, the way in which we think humanity has been affected by sin is um, a term that we use, a term that we use to talk about the way in which sin has affected humanity is total depravity. And the way sometimes we understand that is that every single person is doing something evil all the time. 
But that's not total depravity. That's perhaps what some others call utter depravity. But the Bible doesn't picture utter depravity. It pictures total depravity. And so what's what's the difference? Well, the difference is that sin has affected every part of our life. That doesn't mean that people who are sinful can't work in a good way. That their motivations for that might be mixed. But there are good acts that people all around our world do. And so we believe in total depravity, sin has affected everything. We don't believe in utter depravity, which says that everyone is doing evil in its most heinous form all the time. We have to thank God that people aren't as bad as they possibly could be. Because it's God who restrains that evil. And so when we're, we're praying, we're going to pray for Ukraine later on, we're actually praying that God would restrain evil. It, it could be worse. And we thank God that it's not as bad as it could be. And we should pray in that way that he would restrain evil. And we should thank God that people who don't even know him can still be used by him in a way, if not in an ultimate way, but in some way. There are decent, honourable people who aren't Christian. Finally, I just want to reflect um, in a couple of ways on this passage for the last couple of minutes. Firstly, I think this passage reminds us that there is great dignity in motherhood. Our world has become very busy. And I think one of the dangers in a very busy world is that for something that has been so assumed for so long, the role of a mother, one of the dangers is that that role is diminished. It's underestimated. It's in some way assumed. And that's not to say that all are mothers or all women are mothers. Uh, women are capable of doing so many things, thousands of things other than giving birth and raising children. And I'm aware that some of us don't have children. Some of us have children that have grown up and don't need much looking after, but grandchildren do. Some of us aren't married. Some of us are married without children. And there are all sorts of things that women can do in the service of God. But it's interesting here in this very important book of the Bible, in the first one and a half chapters, it's striking that the whole story moves forward. The redemption of God's people moves forward simply by mothers looking after their kids. Simply by women looking after children. God uses them in mighty ways. Ways in which they could not fully understand at the time. And all of God's plans in this moment come about simply by loving children and protecting their little lives. These women are faithful in the ordinary, in the mundane. And so for mothers, we want to remind them that their labour is not in vain. Perhaps they don't see each day, each week, the beginning from the end. 
and perhaps they don't know exactly what God is doing. But we see here that God's entire plan to redeem his people hinges on the faithfulness of these women. God always has a plan and he can use anyone to carry it out. And no doubt God's plan at that time looked unknown, small and insignificant. Moses and his parents were up against a massive power and it would have been hard to consider what God could be doing as that baby was placed upon that river. But they trusted God. I don't know if you've heard of the butterfly effect. Put your hand up if you've heard of the butterfly effect. Um, scientists uh, debated it 10 years or so ago, and it, it's a theory about um, how you, coming from the prediction of weather patterns. And uh, apparently there was a mistake made with a decimal point um, in the factor uh, of the effect of the fluttering of a butterfly's wings. And, and the theory goes is that, you know, the flapping of a butterfly's wing off in the Amazon, just that little moment or movement, by the time it builds up, can have a massive impact in the sending of a hurricane somewhere else in the world. It's what's called the butterfly effect. Well, we see here in this story, as God works, we see the bulrushes effect. That a little boat and a little family is on this river. And it's just an ordinary day for everyone else in the world. But it's not an ordinary day for Moses' parents or for the Israelites. And we see this bulrush effect in action as one little baby because his parents did what? They just trusted in God and acted accordingly. We see this massive effect as the book of Exodus unfolds where God redeems his people and brings them into the promised land. And it's a great reminder for us. We never actually know what God is up to. We know ultimately what he's up to. But in the ordinary moments of life, in the life of our little church, we don't always know what God is up to. But we know he's at work when people trust him and express that trust in the ordinary little moments of life. The word basket in Hebrew is only used one other time. It's used in Genesis chapter 6 to 8 where it's translated as ark. And I think Moses is making a connection. He's saying just like God built a great big ark so that a little family and a lot of animals could survive that flood, saving his people. Well, now God is going to build a little ark for this one baby, saving his people. Because that's how God works. That's how he works in the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus faced the same thing. A tyrannical king that ordered all the little babies to be killed. But what did his parents do? His parents believed and they fled to Egypt. Just as God saved, Mo Just as God saved Moses to save his people, so too God has saved the Lord Jesus to save us. 
And so we're reminded this morning, as we look out onto our world, as we see floods and war, as we experience the ongoing effects of disease, we're reminded that when human rescue looks impossible, when the world's power seems impressive, and God's people seem so weak and vulnerable, God has a plan, and it can't be thought thwarted. And he uses ordinary people in the ordinary moments of life because they trust in him and are faithful and will deliver him just as God delivered Moses on that river. And just as God delivered the Lord Jesus and rose and gave him life as he rose in the resurrections, so too God will work in our lives in a way that's probably surprising but in a way in which we can trust him. Amen.